Listeners, for tuning in again to the Veterinary Kaleidoscope. I'm Kate. I'm a clinical veterinarian in Batemans Bay, uh, which is on Wild Bunter Land in Yuan Nation on the New South Wales South Coast. I'm a trans woman and I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Cam. I'm a vet, PhD researcher, and I'm also a Palawar man, but I am on Wurundjeri country today and my Pronouns are he and him. And today we are joined by Dash. Dash is a cisgender gay person. Uh, He uses pronouns he, him and they, them. Uh, He lives on the land of Gungay people and works as a clinician in mixed practice. Uh, I think that I'll hand it over to you there, Dash. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kit and Cam, for having me. This is um, exciting for me. So, yeah, like you already said, I'm a mixed practice clinician uh, in far north Queensland on uh, Gulnai country. It's, it's a very special place, um, lots of beautiful rainforest, and part of what I do is also work with a lot of wildlife. My interests at the moment are based in um, one health, but looking at it from a wildlife conservation point of view. Um, I do like um, being a clinician at the moment uh, very much, though, and I don't see that changing for a while. Um, so I plan to work in this space, but work on those interests and um, as well as working at improving um, our industry, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah, most definitely. So to our usual roundup, what we've been up to, what we've got going on. Cam, how's how's your life going? Have you, been, have you had a lockdown down in Melbourne there yet? Yeah, well, things are opening up. Um, get to go out to some restaurants. Uh, went to the amazing Mabu Mabu in, uh, in Fed Square, which is a Torres Strait Islander restaurant that I've been wanting to go to for a very long time. So got to go there a couple of weeks ago. Got rained on, but didn't uh, dampen the spirits because it was just nice to be out of the house and have the opportunity to have someone else cook for me for first time in a few months. So that was a real treat. Yeah, just getting out and about and sort of having the opportunity to leave Melbourne is pretty cool too. Um, Have you been out of Melbourne? uh, Yeah, a little bit, not too far yet, but the opportunity to think about, oh, maybe going home to Tassie for the end of the year is, yeah, getting yeah. A, bit, a bit giddy, really. Just to, yeah, see my family will be will be pretty special. Other than that, you know, the usual work. I've um, done a bit of judging in an art prize recently, which was pretty fun, Ooh. something a bit different. And also been involved in some sort of more creative stuff through the university, but some uh, Indigenous uh, sort of cultural understanding and cultural identity workshops, which has been a really cool thing to be a part of as well. Wow. That's, that sounds super cool. I've actually been doing a writing workshop with a... Um, oh, cool. 
with uh, an online group. It's a, it's a trans and gender diverse focused online uh, writing workshop group. So and that's been really interesting on a creative side. So mm. it's really fascinating to hear about the the art prize, Judgy. That sounds that sounds amazing. Yeah, I was pretty lucky to to be a part of it. Um, so I was fortunate enough to actually win the art prize. It's the Graduate Student Association at uh, University of Melbourne. So. I was lucky to win last year, which means that you get to be one of the judges the following year. So um, it was a pretty tough, tough choice. And I guess I'd never had to think that critically about certainly so many pieces of art. But um, we did manage to come to a decision in the end. But yeah, a lot of really cool art pieces on the theme of sustainability, which was really cool to see as well, thinking about all the different ways you can think about sustainability. Cool. I feel like we should put the, the your winning art piece up on the link tree. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think so. <laughs> yeah, it sounds awesome. How about you, Dash? What you been up to? Um, so I've actually been um, intentionally taking care of myself. I've had a couple of weeks off um, oh, and really um, used that time to recharge and I, th- I think you totally underestimate going taking a break or going somewhere that isn't your norm until you do it I only really went away from home for six days or something but that was huge for me yeah so that's been really good I've uh, come back and jumped straight back into it and had a, a really really busy week <laughs> puts it all into perspective a bit I guess Mm, definitely the two weeks off we when we had like two weeks and we just uh, back in july and travel sort of uh, for a bit with the kids it was just it definitely gives you some perspective back a little bit doesn't it rather than being caught up in that sort of almost uh treadmill of sort of uh, feeling like you've got constantly trying to catch up at work yeah, yeah definitely yeah it can be hard coming back too i think feeling like there's a pile to come back to can't it there's yeah, just always right. <laughs> that that sort of dread that you feel that what's there for me when I do get back so yeah it's good to be able to make the most of it when you do get that time off I guess it's um yeah something that we're maybe not that well set up for in a lot of parts of of the profession is really relinquishing our role to somebody else while we're away um, and having just nothing, you know, huge to come back to and just be able to kind of pick up where you left off would be really nice, I think. That's a a really interesting point, Cam. I actually, I kind of like to talk about that a little bit and hear what Mm. you think, Dash, about that idea of feeling like you've got a pile of stuff you've got to get back to and how do you compartmentalise yourself so that you're not constantly thinking whilst you're on a break about, oh, my God, I've got to get back to that and that and that and that and the other thing. And certainly as a practice owner, that sort of can become a bit of a, in the past, Mm. I used to be really bad at that. Like I was really bad. Uh, I think I've gotten better over the years. But sort of uh, how did you find that, Dash? Were you sort of... Were you feeling like you were thinking about work things whilst you had a break or you sort of, you're very good on mindfulness? (laughs) Um, Absolutely not. I'm terrible at mindfulness, no matter how hard I try. 
but yeah, I, I find it really hard to, to step away from work uh, on the weekends. Um, I'm very conscious of it. And, uh, and so is my partner. He's very good at uh, calling me out on things if I do um, swing by the clinic as I say on the weekends or on my days off he'll try and accompany me so he can hurry me along (laughs) so he's really good he's a very good checkpoint for me Um, but yeah I found it really hard because I was um, quite backlogged with a lot of my records I was partly wanting to get those done because I didn't want that stress when I was on holidays Um, and then eventually what I decided was I needed to physically put some distance between myself so I couldn't you know work from home or go go get a computer from home uh, from work and then do some records at home so I could take an absolute break from it I think another part is um, if you can, and you obviously can't do this always, is if you know there's going to be something that's probably going to, like one of your cases that's going to turn up, like write a very detailed plan for what's going to happen. I had, it was just my luck that I had a few patients that had chronic illnesses that I'd been treating and they all, like three of them, crashed while I was away Um, so that was um, that was interesting my colleagues are really good at keeping me out of like not calling me up um, unless they absolutely need to so a couple of them knew that they were like important patients to me so they they just let me know Um, but they're like yeah and I think having a good team like I trust them to take care of my patients so um, I didn't have any issues with them handling um, those cases while I was away. Yeah, a good team's awesome, isn't it? Like just yeah. being able to trust that team. I think, I think you're right about the the idea. I think of uh, a physical distancing definitely helps, and and yeah. and that that was great for us going travelling because we went way out west, yeah. out to Broken Hill. <laughs> And that physical distance meant that you just couldn't. And that, and that was very del- deliberately decided by us. Mm. Um, but the, I was going to say, Dash, like you sort of, it sounds like you've got a great team there that sort of that really, and I think this is critical for our um, profession and, and sort of we'll touch on this a little bit later, I think. Uh, I hope yeah. the AVA um, Mental Health Wellness Report That's is right. yeah. uh, that, team can be so important in helping to see you to actually maintain your mental health um, mm. it's it's not just about individuals it's about whole teams isn't it and yeah. teams respecting each other exactly yeah. yeah um a big part of where i work is my team um is everyone that even though we currently have more bad days than good it it is really the team that uh, keeps me wanting to go back to work and uh, are a big part of why I still want to work even though there's a lot of pressure there Um, and I'm finding ways to sort of manage that while still being at this workplace because I really like the people that I work with yeah so so important uh well uh so I've been well it's been kind of busy times for for me. We've uh, been so we're in Mardi Gras prep mode at the moment, which basically has meant that 
uh, all of the submissions for Mardi Gras Parade and sort of Fair Day and, and everything have had to be in by tomorrow at 9am. So the last three weeks mm. has been spent sort of uh, organising those, which is always a, it's always a big thing. Uh, this week is Transgender Awareness Week, uh, leading up to Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is November the 20th. Uh, so if listeners are not aware, there's, there's kind of two days a year that are pretty big in the, uh, in the trans community, trans and gender diverse community. They would be TDOR, Transgender Day of Remembrance, where we remember uh, trans people who've lost their lives to violence in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and also TDOV, Transgender Day of Visibility, which is in March, which is basically... TDOV is kind of about really celebrating trans people's successes, doing the whole sort of really super uplifty sort of type of thing. The two sort of do, like we do a little bit of that in Transgender Awareness Week, but I, I in Transgender Awareness Week I tend to focus mostly on just letting people know kind of like where the challenges are in being mm. trans in, in sort of modern society, that like the things that I think a lot of the times cisgender people can have a tendency to take for granted and, and yeah. sort of uh, whereas it's like, you know, and you, and you tell people like sort of about what it's like to try and do things like change a birth certificate or, or sort of, uh, you know, or, or sort of uh, go to play on a sport team or something like that and you tell them about that and they're like, oh, wow, gee, that's, I never thought of that. And it's just like, yeah, we know. So that's, I tend to try and sort of use Transgender Awareness Week to highlight those sort of elements so yes that's really what i've been up to this weekend i've actually been attending also been attending the mcvma's rise conference which is a multicult the mcvma is the multicultural veterinary medical association of america and they've got a conference all on mainly sort of multicultural diversity they've got a few other bits and pieces thrown in there and some intersectionality stuff and whatnot that's actually been really good and and if uh, listeners hopefully by the time this comes out there should still be an opportunity for people to register because the sessions are recorded uh so and i can absolutely totally and thoroughly recommend even even registering for that just to get the recorded sessions because they're just they're Mm. genuinely amazing and uh, just topics way out of the box. If you're after a conference that's not going to tell you what bloody eardrop to use in a no-titus external case, um, <laughs> sort of then, um, then definitely this is the conference. Uh, this is the conference for you. Uh, I'd like to switch back to you now, Dash. In, your, in our introduction, we've sort of talked about the fact that you are a person of colour and a, a gay, sort of a, a gay person of colour. The, what we'd like to, what I'd really love to explore is how that sort of, uh, what your experiences were going through, because you graduated in 2019? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, what your experiences were going through university and also what it's like being a gay person of colour in regional Australia. Because it's not sort of, um, I guess it's probably this, we have this impression that it's not common and sort of we don't see a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. I guess to sort of give listeners a bit of a background on really amount of layers that I have going on, I guess, is 
that I am a Sri Lankan Australian man. Um, so uh, it is interesting in the sense that it has really shaped the way I see the world um, because I was born in Australia, but I grew up in Sri Lanka, which is quite the opposite of most people who have emigrated to Australia. Is they have, they're either born or they're from families that are Sri Lankan heritage and have grown up here. So in a way, I grew up in Sri Lanka, always knowing that I'd come back to Australia at some point to study, um, to go to university um, and potentially to live. But it was interesting that, you know, I had left when I was about three years old and I didn't really know anything about Australia or didn't have any lived experience as a child. So it's, it can be really confusing for some people because I'm just not what they expect. Um, it can be very interesting because I travel on two passports. So I do have to think about like what passport I'm traveling on when I tell people what nationality I am on, uh, like uh, I am, because I always think, oh, what if something happens and they contact the wrong embassy? So it is, it is interesting. Going through uni as, as, uh, as that, it was interesting because I looked like and I sound like an international student, but I, I'm not. So um, quite often I was like, and I didn't have this childhood in Australia. So I have some similarities with things that we had in common, like um, the bananas in pyjamas and Vegemite and a few of those things. But, you know, largely I grew up in Sri Lanka, so I didn't have a lot of things like childhood commonalities. So it was always interesting navigating those spaces because like a lot of people saw me as an international student. I felt like an international student in some places because um, I'd only moved to Australia maybe um, a, a few months before I started going to uni. So it was, a, it was a bit of a culture shock as well in that sense. But largely, um, university was my glow up. I came out of the closet shortly before I started at the University of Melbourne so I did a part of a Bachelor of Agriculture there. And I'd say that was really where I learned to really love myself and really embrace uh, what was unique about me because I'd suppressed it for a very long time. And then by the time I arrived at Murdoch, I had a bit more, bit more confidence, a bit more of an idea of self, like who I was as a person. So I was quite the fabulous creature in uni, I'd say. So, I yeah, definitely, was... I definitely remember you being very fabulous at <laughs> a number of IVI functions. <laughs> yeah, so it was, I found it quite a breeze being a gay man and being more, a more effeminate gay man who also didn't really dress very heteronormative. I wear very large earrings. I do wear lots of, I guess, um, conventionally or stereotypically uh, clothes associated with cisgender women. So, um, yeah, that I felt like it was a very safe space for me to express myself in that sense. Um, I definitely found it challenging being a, a colored person and, you know, not fitting into that category of being an international student, neither being a domestic student in whole. 
Um, but that's been the story of my life. I've never been, I've never been fully Australian and I've never been fully Sri Lankan. And in both of those spaces, they always see me as a foreigner. So like I've had to convince people in Sri Lanka speaking in the native tongue that I am Sri Lankan Uh, and because it's quite interesting they have this thing called um, an ID card which is I guess like a proof of age card here because not everyone has a driver's license and on that for some reason it tells you the place of birth so quite often they'd look at it and it would say Australia and they'd be like oh you're, you're Australian and I'm like no no I've grown up here and I'm talking to you in the language and then be like, oh, yeah, it's a very easy language to learn. And I'm like, it really isn't. I've been speaking it my entire life and I'm not very good at it. So it that has, I mean, it's still something I guess I struggle a little bit with in that sense of my identity as to what I introduce myself as. Because living in, in rural Queensland, I quite often get categorized as an Indian, not even you know, as a, from the subcontinent, like from South Asia, just straight up Indian. And some people will be like, oh, isn't everyone here a Singh? And I'm like, oh, uh, that is, that, there's so much for us to discuss here that uh, I don't think this consult is going to be long enough for that. And quite often, like people will ask you, oh, where are you from? And I was like, that's a very hard question for me to answer because I'm not exactly sure what they expect me to say. Like most of the time it is where you got this accent from and what, what has led to your skin color. Um, a majority of the time, that's what they're asking in what they think is a polite way. But it is completely irrelevant to what I'm doing there. And I guess that is one of those microaggressions that we'll discuss later that can sort of make myself really defensive. I, I get on the defense and think, all right, now I need to, this guy's, this person's already, you know, put me in this box and I need to prove to them that whatever box you put in, I'm capable of, you know, doing this job really well and, hopefully I'm going to shatter that box. And the only thing you're going to remember is that I'm a great vet or whatever I want to be in that moment. So I think it hasn't come up so much for me living in far North Queensland uh, about being gay. Some of the more thing, like the more challenging things I've faced is, is racism is um, also seeing sexism towards my colleagues. So currently I'm the only male veterinarian at the practice that I'm at and there are people who will ask for for a male veterinarian and as as a general rule um, I've told the rest of the staff there if they do ask for that I'm not interested in seeing them. Uh, I think it's worthwhile talking a little bit and expanding on the microaggression thing because as you mentioned uh, it's um and it's been a topic lately. Uh, I think, listeners, if you uh, uh, if you don't know what a microaggression is or, uh, or what microaggressions are, then I would encourage listeners to go to the BVA website. They have an awesome collection of uh, resources for talking about microaggressions. Uh, but kind of my 
my sort of my interpretation or my thing on microaggressions, and I, I, this is completely a personal thing, sort of uh, please don't anyone think this is the definitive answer, but I think there are things that people say that they don't realise that they don't realise the unconscious biases that they're carrying when they actually say them. So they think that they're just fine things to say, but they don't realise all of the sort of crap that sits behind it that means that they think it's okay to say that. Uh, and so they're not a deliberate aggression, but they, they are sort of, uh, they can be kind of, they can still be really quite, I, I think at times quite insulting and quite challenging. That's that's at least my sort of, uh, my feelings with them. What about you guys? What do you think? Yeah, I think for me, um, I I guess I don't face that many outward microaggressions being a straight, cisgender, pale-skinned man. There are certainly some things with my cultural identity where I have been denied that based on what people perceive of me and... I suppose as far as microaggressions go for me and for a few people that I've spoken to, I guess it sometimes it feels like the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not something that that is really painful in itself because it's, you know, it's a microaggression. It's not a macroaggression where somebody is necessarily being hugely outwardly aggressive towards you, but it's those repeated and and cumulative effects i guess for me has been the the thing when it comes to that that sort of stuff yeah absolutely i agree with you cam i think it is it kind of it depends with me you know like sometimes i'm really good at brushing them off and not being affected by them and depending on the day i had sometimes it's definitely something that um, I need to debrief with someone and say that was it, it almost feels stupid that I am so affected by this but this actually cuts me a little deeply and I think one of the examples for me is um when when clients call up for um, to either complain or for whatever reason, and they the only thing they can identify me is by the color of my skin. Like I had this the other day where um, the the clients had missed their their recheck appointment, and it had suddenly become something that was really urgent, and uh, they insisted that they don't want to see the Indian when, when they come in. And it was a long day and I was like, I was already stressed. And, you know, just hearing that, I was like, they've reduced me beyond everything, you know, um, beyond my knowledge or my name or any other part of my identity to the color of my skin. And, and they had also misinterpreted that. You know, one of the um, one of the team came and said that, and you know, they didn't even realize, I don't, like how much that would affect me. 
I have brought it up in the past, like because I work in such a great workplace where I can bring these things up quite comfortably. Once it did get to a point where it was sort of, I did notice that it was affecting me. I said, you know, it's it's fine if people call up and they can't remember my name and they say the brown wet or the South Asian wet or the Asian wet or or the gay wet or the wet with long hair because I said those are all parts of my identity uh, which are correct. But if they they call up and um, they say the Indian wet, I need you to correct them because educating them is not my job, and they need to know that. They can they can go and educate themselves. You just need to tell them he's not Indian, he's Sri Lankan, and then they can ponder why that is, why what they've said, you know, got that response. Because um, part of I think that any sort of person that is not cisgender and not pale skin has that onus on them to sort of educate these people who have put us into boxes. And I'm quite a firm believer. Like it's different if it is someone, uh, one of my friends, or someone that I'm close to. Um, but I don't think it's on me to educate every person in the general population on how they should talk and conduct themselves, because we don't expect that in with any other group that it is that isn't a minority. That's a it's a really it's an interesting point, and I I actually think that. The other thing I think about microaggressions that uh, I think people who are not normally subject to microaggressions, so people from, you know, basically cis white, mm. you know, uh, majority, is that it's sometimes we're there to do the educating and sometimes we're in the space that we can do the educating. And, and sort of, uh, and there are times when, there are times when I'm ready to do the educating and it's, and it's okay. Like sort of, you know, people can ask me, dumb stuff like you know have you had surgery and there are times when I'm I'm okay to do the educating on that like you know and just sort of go look you know why are you asking that like you're really just conflating anatomy with gender like sort of it's not sort of it's not a Mm. it's not really a great question and sort of blah blah but there's times when I'm not in a space and I and sort of to actually to do that and 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 there are times like you say Dash when it upsets you it's, I think it's what I sort of, uh, I think where allies and, and sort of, uh, and sort of, uh, and cis white people sort of, uh, uh, and I'm saying cis white people listeners, I'm sorry, it, it is mostly that majority of cis white people where they sort of get a little bit confused as they're sort of like, oh, but I said that to someone the other day and they were fine with it. And they, and they sort of, they, they struggle to sort of see that there's a, sort of uh, environment and sort of uh, and everything can sort of play into how that's impacting. And if someone says to you, you know, if you say to someone something like sort of uh, like if I if I said to you, Cam, oh, but you don't look Aboriginal, it's not up to me to decide whether or not that's a mm-hmm. sort of uh, that's an okay thing to say. That's, that's up to you, mm-hmm. Cam. Yeah. And maybe the person who was quote unquote okay with it didn't feel safe to say mm. that they weren't too um i think is something that people often don't comprehend as well yeah exactly like there's so many times that i would just walk away from that or 
um, you know, address it with something that could be really short, just so that I don't have to deal with that. Then there's sometimes that I'm feeling really cocky or really sassy and I'm like, I'm going to make you work for it. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm just I just live down the road when they ask me where I'm from. And then they're like, oh, no, no. I mean, like before you came here and I was like, oh, yeah, I used to live in Perth. And they're like, oh, before that. And I'll be like, oh, I used to live in Melbourne. And, you know, by that time, most people have sort of caught on to it and like, oh, I've done something wrong and they are already questioning it themselves um and then sometimes they'll be like okay and then i'll follow it up with like so where are you from Mm. oh yeah you know like you you never thought that i'd come back and ask you that question did you (laughs) um and sort of makes them think um and i think it is something that if you are not from one of those um Uh, minorities that do face microaggressions it's just not something that you have thought about or reflect so in in ways it is I guess the reason we do call them microaggressions is because they are most often meant with no malicious intent whereas when you address them sometimes they can come off as a real aggression yeah. <laughs> um like that's what i'm sometimes conscious about is like oh in trying to educate this person i've made this microaggression like a full-on aggression and i think sometimes it's just not like for me sometimes the workplace is not the appropriate place to do it's, that yeah um, i i uh, yeah. actually it's really interesting you say that dash because in the workshop I was doing this morning at RISE, we actually talked about this. And there's, uh, we talked about, there's a framework called ORID. I'm going to have to look it up and put it in the link. It's on the link tree page, to be honest. But it was basically, it was about dealing with uh, dealing with microaggressions. Because as you say, and one of the participants in the workshop gave an example where they pulled up a colleague over a pretty racist comment. You know, they'd said something really dumb, like sort of, uh, they'd mis- misnamed a sort of, uh, a Southeast Asian colleague, and then they said, oh, I've got another intern who looks exactly like her. And it's just like, you know, you know yeah. sort of, all Asians don't look the same, honey. <laughs> but sort of, she'd sort of, and it is very easy to, it's easy to slip into a confrontational approach to that. And and if you do, I, I think sort of, uh, number one, if, uh, if you are from a minority and sort of, uh, and you, you are the subject of a microaggression and you slip into a confrontational mode and you realise afterwards that you slipped into that confrontational mode, it's okay. We all do that. Like sort of it's really don't beat yourself up over it. To the sort of to the people who are projecting the microaggressions, if someone from a minority sort of does slip into that confrontational mode, maybe there's a sort of kind of a reason that they're actually slipping into those confrontational modes. And you might need to sort of have a little think and reflect on that. I don't think there's any doubt that confrontation doesn't really lead to education. It's just that we're not always, well, I'm certainly not always in the space to actually educate everyone that I come across. It's a challenging one. Certainly the, uh, the ORID was sort of, uh, was, it basically revolved around uh, clarifying what someone sort of said. Like, so did you mean to say that but then reflecting that back at them like sort of basically when you say that it's coming across to me like sort of I'm hearing sort of 
say for you, Dash, when you say the Indian vet, I'm hearing that you have, you disregard all people from the subcontinent as being exactly the same, mm. the same. And then the I is sort of the impact of that. Like sort of uh, what's the impact of a, of a statement like that? Like, an, as you say, Dash, as a single sort of event, perhaps not so much, but as it sort of adds and adds and adds and adds, it doesn't help. And the D is the hardest one, which is, uh, I think at times, which is uh, direction, which is basically saying, look, in future, please, I'm Sri Lankan or I'm, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm trans and my body parts have got nothing to do with sort of like I'm a woman, like sort of uh, my body parts are irrelevant to you. So it's a, it's a useful framework if you can keep yourself in the, in, the, in the sort of the mindfulness space to actually use it, which as we've discussed earlier, always the easiest. Yeah, I think it can be hard sometimes when the the intention of, of what you can say to people, um, people will perceive it in some very unusual ways and it's become so emotive for people to be told that they are, what they've said is racist or transphobic or homophobic that that becomes the thing that they're laser focused on and maybe just stop listening to the whole rest of the yeah. conversation. And that can be really hard too, I think. It's it's really challenging. Certainly on a one-on-one basis, I strongly avoid using those words nowadays just for that reason. It's just so hard because once you sort of, and it would have been like what they said was racist, like the sort of uh, what, what those sort of for uh, those microaggressions they're racist they're homophobic they're transphobic like sort of uh, there's no doubt about it in and of themselves the statements are but if you call that out the individual takes that on as being that you're placing that label on them and maybe i know maybe i am sometimes maybe i am i'm not i'm not above making sort of uh, mistakes myself so i consciously do try and avoid those words try and focus on, on sort of uh, on coming to that dialogue with the individual. But it's it's not easy sometimes. I'd like to actually ask you guys, both of you actually, because I, like honestly, I and this is the reason why I wanted to bring the BVA campaign up because the BVA campaign, the, the, the microaggressions for LGBT people, I have literally, Tara and I have literally had every one of them every single one on that poster uh and almost always from veterinary colleagues sort of certainly mostly from veterinary colleagues and i'm kind of interested to find out sort of uh, what your experiences have been you know i've had it from the public as well but certainly I guess my retrospective, uh, my reflective sort of thing is that it's mostly from colleagues. Uh, maybe that's just because they impact me more because they are my colleagues and I have higher higher expectations of them. Maybe that's it. I, yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah, I guess for me um, I have faced a little bit, not so much in the vet setting, I suppose, from a few clients but not necessarily directed it at me all the time um, because being fair-skinned, it doesn't come up a whole lot. 
Um, but when it does, it certainly can happen. And I get the usual questions of what percentage are you? Ouch. Which is, yeah, really <laughs> harkens back to oh. the old government classifications yeah. of octoroons and, um, mm. yeah, wow. all that horrendous stuff. And, of course, that aren't all Tasmanian Aboriginals extinct is mm. one of the other usual ones. So, yeah, a lot of that sort of stuff. But I guess most of what I've been exposed to in a professional capacity has been um, more directed at other Indigenous people. So um, working up in Northern Victoria, people's people's attitudes towards Yorta Yorta mob up there. Um, and then my work in, in Arnhem Land as well, different, different mob up there as well. So, yeah being faced with and it's usually people who aren't aware that i am aboriginal trying to have a little joke with me which doesn't go well not funny yeah <laughs> never funny like sort of not racism is not a funny joke no Ash? on that point cam that is something that i very uncomfortably experience a lot of where i am mm. currently and people think it is okay because I don't identify in some of those as some of those groups. But when I educate them, a lot of the time what I say is, I mean, I'll say it is racist or, you know, um, transphobic or whatever they may be saying at that time. But I what I try and enlighten them is that in the same way that you're discriminating discriminate in this group or you're being really hurtful is that the way I see it is you could easily do the same and make a joke about any of the things that I identify as and that's that's the, how I relate to it and how I look at it just to put it into a, a bit of like perspective to them and I'd say this is often people that I'm um, comfortable having like this extensive chat with like when I have the time to just say sit in this space and feel uncomfortable about it because that's what you're doing like I don't have I don't want to make you feel better about what you've just said I just want to educate you and make you feel as uncomfortable as what you might make someone else feel um, and for me it, it's me in that sense in that in that moment in, because it is something that I feel very strongly about any sort of discrimination. Uh, I look at it as if you're going to say something harmful about someone else because they are a little bit different to you, I'm different to you, you could easily do the same thing to me. You may not do it where I am. Um, and in a way, that's, that's more hurtful. That is certainly something that I do experience a lot of. And that the same thing, like I mentioned earlier about not wanting to see a female colleague and very early on yeah I was like yep that's I have no intention of seeing those clients um, if they want to see me just because they see me as a male um, then they they're not asking for me for the correct reasons not for my knowledge uh, not for my experience and they're just reducing me to what they think my gender is and my anatomy mm which I don't use to treat animals quite often. <laughs> Completely. Oh, Emma, yeah, I yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I used to Emma. get that quite a bit uh, working with cattle in Northern Victoria too, being, you know, yeah. six foot five if there was a calving 
farmers would sometimes mm-hmm. ask for me and I'd say, well, why? What is that? I can't, I've got stupid big arms. I can't even fit them in there. It's, this is, this is harder. This is worse. Why would you want that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not a, I'm not hugely confident with horses and um, I never grew up around horses. Um, and for that reason, I'm not very confident with more, I should say horse, like equine clients more than the horses themselves. And so I will go and see them if I have to. And there are certain cases like lamenesses that I'm very poor at that I think one of my colleagues can do a far better service for them. And I think, why are you asking for me? Like, you are literally going to get the the worst possible clinician to see your animal for this case. Just because you know of your perceived notions of like what a veterinarian needs to be okay what you were saying earlier about whether it is like colleagues where we've experienced some of that the most for me I think like a lot of like what you said like the public and clients that you don't have a long relationship with a lot of that is you just look at them as ignorant or whatever and then that's it you don't have uh it's not as hurtful as someone that you respect saying something like that i totally agree with you and if you do hold someone to sort of a higher standard um and they do say something hurtful it 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 impacts you a lot more yeah i think it's uh, that kind of leads in a little bit and touches on you mentioned about safe spaces a little bit before that sort of uh, mm. and we talked about this in the group chat just before we sort of started recording uh, mm. that would be an interesting sort of thing to explore because like I do have expectations of my colleague they are a part of my life and and, and sort of uh, and I'd really like those environments when I'm in when I'm in those environments those spaces with a lot of my colleagues I'd like to be able to feel safe to really fully express who I am. And I genuinely have to say I don't. There is no doubt that if I go to a veterinary conference, like a major veterinary conference, like the AVA National Conference or something like that, Science Week or whatever it is, uh, that I'm bracing myself. And, And I think I probably... I probably behave slightly differently. I probably do, as you say, Dash, probably glow up a little bit more to probably push that boundary that little bit further because it's like it becomes a little bit of an armour for me. Like it becomes a, a shield and an armour that it's sort of like, you know, bring it, sort of uh, I'm ready for it. And I I do find that really challenging compared to when, so uh, we were just chatting before we started recording this, listeners, and, and I was talking about uh, um, that I was doing a writing workshop. It might have been while we were recording. I'm sort of getting dementia now, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I'm doing a writing workshop with trans and gender diverse, sort of it's a trans and diverse writing workshop. And literally, I don't know these people from a bar of salt, but I can open up about some really quiet, raw pieces of my life and I don't feel that I have to 
defend myself and I don't feel like I have to justify myself to them. I think I, I, it would be nice if that was the, I felt more the case and I don't know if that's me. I feel like it's partly me, but I also feel like it is partly our profession and our colleagues. Uh, I don't think they're getting off scot-free on this. How do you, like, yeah, how do you guys feel about that? How do you, how do you navigate that? I think I, I agree with you that there is a lot of responsibility, um, especially for, for allies to, or people that think of themselves as allies. And I think that, that this is one of my pet peeves, this word ally, when it is used inappropriately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because um, a lot of people that know me, that are nice to me, will think of themselves as allies. And I think, no, you're a decent human being. You're not necessarily an ally just because you're tolerant of me or you are sort of sitting in this space with me and not insulting me. That does not make you an ally. I think, and and that's probably something worth really touching on is if you do see yourself as an ally, you are actively trying to trying to educate mm. on some of those prejudices because y- you can be so important for a person who's not quite ready to do that education or um, correct someone or who does not feel safe in that space. Mm. And this is for like partly for younger students that I went through at uni with who, I mean, I didn't have any uh, direct uh, identification with them, like they would have been trans or different ethnicity. And, but um, I felt very responsible to, if I identify myself as an ally, that I would correct and stand up for them in situations where they may not feel so comfortable. And that's, I think that's not so much of being a white knight sort of situation, Um, but sometimes just, you know, if no one has addressed that situation um, and I'm there, then I I feel like I am responsible because I am, I, I see myself as an ally. Yeah. I think that is just a word that's sort of thrown around when you're, you're tolerant. And I think, we're at a point in time where tolerance is not, you know, it's not Acceptance good isn't good enough for me. Um, I, that, sorry, it's, yeah, it's exactly. you should be advocating. There's so mm. much to advocate for. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so and I agree with the white knight thing too. Like it's like if you're an ally and you're sort of in your white knighting, and when I say when I think we're sort of talking about the same thing here, Dash, when you're white knighting, it's basically... It's you defending a person who's from a minority, but it's really, it's not about them. It's about you getting the attention. Mm. Um, that's not helpful. Like, don't, just don't do it. It's it's not helpful. It's easy to slip into, but it's it's not helpful. Yeah, I think, sorry, and Kate, you may, um, like you guys might have separate um, opinions on this. I think um, part of it is, is checking in with that person that you think is affected um, and asking them, you know, do you want me to, this is like something that I think is an issue and I'd like to bring it up, but I'd also like your blessing on it. I don't want to speak on your behalf because I'm an ally. 
um, I don't know what it is like to be you. So if I'm speaking out of terms, then, um, you know, ideally I'd like you to speak in this space, but if you're not feeling up to it, do I have your blessing to speak in this space? I think that's just so important. Absolutely. Check in. Just check in and make sure that you're, if you're an ally, and this goes for sort of, uh, for me, for as being an LGBT white person, and I will, I am white, mm. and I will advocate for people of colour. I will advocate for people with disabilities. I will advocate sort of uh, um, uh, for people who are neurodiverse. But it's got to be centering them. You got to make sure you're centering them. You got to make sure that you're checking in with them, that you're not saying stuff that you think, but is just not important or not relevant to them. How about you, Dash? Sorry, I think you meant Cam. I meant Cam. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. So we'll let 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 Cam have a go, yeah. <laughs> then we can uh, get into it. No worries. More. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really beautiful way of of putting it, Dash. And I think that being an ally is yeah about doing the work and making space for people to have a voice but in so many other ways too so economically i think in an indigenous sense is a really big thing too there um i think a good example is there are a lot of businesses who are profiting from indigenous knowledges particularly as it pertains to bush foods and things like that so there's a heap of businesses out mm. there now who who some purport to have profit sharing systems involved but it's kind of limited to that and sometimes that's not even done in a great way there's just not really i think they consider themselves allies but i don't think that they're really doing the work um, and actually making space for for Indigenous people to to grow in those spaces and to occupy the space that that they are entitled to that they deserve. So yeah, I think yeah, being an ally really is just about doing doing the work and and putting people forward and and not yeah having it be about you and going back to the the safe spaces thing too mm. i thought it was interesting and a sort of the reason that we we kind of started talking about it in the group chat initially was uh as a response to the bva campaign on on microaggressions uh, an online group who i i won't name here but sort of made a response to that which received a, a fair amount of of backlash um quite quite rightly, I would say, which they then responded with talk about safe spaces, how they saw it as a way of um, sanitizing the world, which I thought was a little bit rich from somebody who probably has, I, I don't know, but I imagine the person who wrote it probably has never felt unsafe in really any setting throughout their life. So I thought that was a really strange take on it, but I guess for somebody who, yeah, hasn't hasn't felt unsafe, that that's felt natural to them. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, the, the response from the particular sort of the defence of the thing was challenging mm. for sure, probably even more challenging than the original yeah. post, to be honest, sort of uh, because it... As you say, Cam, it reflected a complete lack of understanding of 
why the need for safe spaces, mm. the, the, the fact that, you know, you, we sort of uh, we walk into rooms and we're ready to defend. It's hard to describe, I, I think, sort of an, uh, I think it's an important idea to understand that Australian Rainbow Vets and Allies, we, we have separate sort of, uh, we have separate groups. We have a group for, that includes everyone, including allies. And we love our allies. Like sort of, uh, as you mentioned, Dash, allies can be so vital. Um, there are some amazing and incredible allies out there. Some people I know very well. And, and yourself, Cam, I would sort of uh, call you an incredible sort of LGBTQA ally. Like sort of uh, it, there's also a safe space that Rainbow Vets has, and that is for people who identify as LGBTQA. Because, as I mentioned before, there's something about being in that space where you know that you don't have to be ready to defend yourself. You know that you don't have to be, you know you're not going to be judged. You know you're not going to be sort of, uh, you know, someone's not going to be coming at you with sort of uh, with something that's super sort of conventional and triggering. And there's a, it's a, it's a psychological place that we retreat to. Well, I retreat to for, for to rejuvenate and, and uh, rest and be able to build back some of that resilience to sort of uh, to so that I can go back out into those spaces where perhaps it's more challenging for me. Um, but I need to be in those challenging spaces because otherwise, how am I going to make the space for everyone larger? How am I going to make it so that trans people are more accepted in our profession? How am I going to make it so that sort of yeah, so that we are more considerate of people who we sort of. Uh, with different physical abilities and, and sort of uh, and who are neurologically like uh, we have to go into those spaces that are that are challenging for us that aren't safe for us at times but we do need to be in there but we need the safe spaces well I I need the safe spaces to re- to retreat to to when I'm as you say Dash sometimes I need to walk away <laughs> and mm-hmm. sort of uh, and just sit and hold. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way of describing a safe space is where you're not expending this emotional energy, um, where you're actually rejuvenating from it. You, It's a space that you can actually thrive and not survive. Mm. Um, whereas currently where I am, I do a lot of surviving. Um, and then I do have separate spaces where that are used to thrive. And that's probably something worth exploring my experience of going regionally uh, and why I'm looking at or comfortable enough to stay regional for at least a, a few more years. That's not to say that at least on maybe a couple of days a week or maybe even a few times a day, I feel unsafe. I feel unsafe in being who I am and being, um, being like expressing my identity um, because I am quite, for me, color and expression and clothes and that's a big part of my identity. And so it is something that's quite outwardly um, noticeable that I'm queer um and so i still do that and i feel an incredible amount of strength and like you mentioned earlier armor 
like for me, sometimes putting on a pair of heels or a very large pair of earrings is, is armor. But I certainly also prepare myself for the fight if I'm going to be wearing armor. And a lot of the time, you know, nothing, maybe nothing will happen, but that anxiety and that um, prior lived experience of things certainly happening means that when you adorn this armor, then you also mentally prepare for this fight. And that can be sometimes helpful energy to carry, but a lot of the time it is ideally someday is energy that I'd like not to carry when I am dressed like that. Cause I just want to feel, I just want to feel beautiful. Sometimes I just want to feel yeah. like I also don't have to be prepared for the fight and defend who I am. I just want to be who I am and just enjoy that um, and not even have to think about it. But no matter how proud I am and how comfortable I am in my skin, there is no doubt that sometimes when I walk out the door, I am also prepared for that fight um, because I know like it is part of my, I guess, self-preservation and something that I'm working on, trying not to carry that with me all of the time. Um, <coughs> sorry. And that's where I think um, safe spaces are so important is that there are some people that may need them because other aspects of their communities may not be open to who they are. So... For me, I can continue living here and opening up that space, as you said, making that a little bit larger, Kate, is because I have um, already put into place certain areas where I can rejuvenate and have that resilience and have that support. Uh, one is my my family is very is very understanding, very open. We are very close and. I can always um, count on them to sort of back me up, even if they don't necessarily agree. Um, what matters to them is that it's important to me. I have my partner that I can come and debrief with. It can be something where I feel really stupid and I just say, you know what, I just need to say this to someone. I don't need you to respond. I don't need you to try and protect me from it. I just need you to sit here and sort of, you know, this was really crap and acknowledge that and that helps that I can do that with someone. I regularly see um, a psychologist and that's part of it as well. There's someone outside of this community that isn't a friend of mine, that isn't a client of mine because I'm in such a small town. They're either or <laughs> yeah. and um, I can talk to them and just, you know, say things without being too concerned about the consequences of what I'm saying. And it's just a massive dump sometimes, depending on the weeks that I've had. But that is really something that helps me, you know, really step out into an area that is definitely challenging and uncomfortable for me. But in the same sense, I'm doing a lot of growth. And I'm also hopefully creating a space that allows someone else like myself to come and and work in these spaces and yeah that that's ideally the way that a lot of what keeps me going and on those hard days is thinking I'm creating space for someone else for it to be easier for someone else 
I love the idea of you growing and also the community growing at the same time. Mm. I think sort of, yeah, uh, I think all, all of it's mm. like sort of uh, when everyone, when you grow as an individual, like your community grows too. I think a lot of people are afraid of growing. It's like, don't be, please. Mm. Yeah. Um, and change. Um, <laughs> changing, you know, like it, it, some of the things I hear about this area is really shocking. Like people that I know really well now that, you know, they have opened up to me and said, I didn't think we'd have anything in common. For example, a cis white woman who has quite right-leaning ideologies and said, I never thought we could be friends. And that's, that's really rewarding for me. And I like being open about my struggles with, with anxiety and feeling unsafe in those spaces. I'm very open at work. And it has been really rewarding for people to like come up and say, you're so open about this stuff. Can I have a chat to you? Like how, where do you seek help? And that sort of thing. And that for me, that's worth it. That's worth it for, you know, spending some time in that uncomfortable space and challenging myself. It really feeds me in those sort of scenarios, those instances. We've said before on this podcast, can please, if, Anyone sort of uh, see a psychologist, see a mental health mm. professional, even if you don't think that you sort of uh, have a problem or if you don't think that they'll be able to help you, like go like talk to someone. It is really quite important and can make a huge difference. And the more we reduce the stigma around that, the, then I think the better our profession will actually, will actually be long term. We've got two topics that we need to touch on. The AVA mental health uh, report on the veterinary profession came out two weeks ago now, I believe. Mm. I did want to touch on that briefly, uh, I think, because I don't know if you guys had a chance to actually to, to have a squeeze at it. I, I actually I think it's pretty good. I actually do think it's really quite good. It, it is overall fairly comprehensive. We'll get to a reason why I think it has missed a major area, but we'll sort of uh, we'll pop that aside for the moment. It's probably one of the best reports I've seen that doesn't focus on having an answer, mm. but actually sort of, uh, or certainly not a single answer, but it actually has... It talks about what are sort of what are factors that contribute, what are contributing factors, what are protective factors, sort of, and how they evolve. So, if anyone's listening and hasn't read the report, please go and have a read of it. It is actually, it is really, really quite good. One thing I was disappointed, though, to be honest, was that there was just really no reflection on diversity and how diversity affects mental health in our veterinary profession. I think that was a Missed opportunity is probably the best the best way I can I can put that. Uh, particularly given sort of uh, the efforts of BVA, and we know that the AVMA's done or the AVMA, the AVMCA or the American Veterinary Medical Colleges Association has done a study a couple of years ago actually on this on diversity and and how it affects uh, mental health in the in the student body particularly. So I think it was a, I found a little bit disappointing that it was missed. I think it would be nice to explore that. How about, what, what about you guys? How did you feel? Did you get a chance to have a look at it? 
I that is my exact same criticism of that report, uh, Ken. I think it did capture what we all, I suppose, have in common as issues across. But there was no mention um, of diversity, and I guess for me to sum it up, it came from a bit of a privileged point of view, where uh, you weren't already set back by uh, certain diversity issues um, when you already that's another layer I guess they didn't say anything about you know whether we were only looking at common um, concerns mm-hmm. across I think if they had probably made that declaration I would have been more comfortable with it um, but that's something I think again that I see an issue with Uh, big bodies like the ABA is that they totally lack representation and from personally like being an ABA rep at uni and having the opportunity to talk to some of those people who were in those positions making decisions and advising on policy I certainly asked questions when I was a student that they that their response was oh that's not something I've experienced or that's not something that I can speak on personally because I'm not a father, I'm not whatever. Mm. But I was like, how can you represent a group of people if you haven't thought of how it's going to affect them? And that was that was one of, I guess, if they had made that declaration, I would have been a little bit more, you know, less critical of the report. But yeah, I think they did a really good job. They did a really good job of identifying what things affect all uh, veterinarians at different stages of their career. And yeah, but they do have a phase two, it says, and what I'd like them to do in that is probably explore how some of the more diverse members of the veterinary profession are affected by it. How about you, Cam? Like sort of, I I guess also... I agree. I think it's... uh... I think it's a missed opportunity for sure as far as diversity goes. It's hard, you know, it's, there was such a good response rate to the survey. And I think that's something that would be hard to do again when, you know, there was that momentum. I think it came at a time where there was a lot of will within the profession to move on things to do with well-being and mental health. And I feel like sometimes with this sort of stuff, you get one shot. And if you don't include the right questions in a survey, you probably aren't going to get a great response rate if you have a second crack, which is a real shame. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. And I think sort of particularly, Dash, like you said, did kind of come across from a bit of a place of privilege. I think the one the one diversity question that they had in there realistically on on gender where they commented in the report that there was like 10 non-binary people and one trans sort of trans female person. Yeah, guess who, obviously. But but then it was like they completely dismissed it. It was like there wasn't enough data there to, to produce anything useful. And it was like that kind of it kind of came across as that real tokenistic 
characteristic of that tolerance of someone who sort of feels like they're sort of, or an organisation that sort of, uh, that, you know, saying that they're an ally and that they're interested in, whereas realistically you're just kind of tolerant. Like you, you sort of, uh, you, you're not really there. I think I, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic, I guess, Cam, that we might get a second bite at this. I, I'd sort of, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd really, I'd actually advocate and have been advocating sort of uh, for a comprehensive look at diversity in the veterinary profession in Australia. I, I think mm. that sort of uh, we've got some excellent models from the, from the BVA studies, from, uh, from the AVMA uh, there's even there's organisations in Australia that do this sort of thing. Pride in Practice and, and uh, the Diversity Council of Australia. Um, uh, there's organisations that are used to doing this with uh, with professions and and all, and uh, so I do think that there is an opportunity there, and I hope that we can get the chance to actually take that up. And I will continue to advocate for us to actually to get the, to actually take that up as a profession. Because I do think it's important. I think it's becoming increasingly important as we get a more diverse entry into universities. It's not as diverse as it could be, but it's getting there mm. like it's better than it used to be. Mm. Believe me, it was a sea of white when I went through university. So hopefully going forward, yeah. Mm. Anyway, let's get on to our last question so we can all sort of uh, then get some dinner because you two are probably starving by now. <laughs> <laughs> So our last question, as uh, as is our usual want, we are going to ask the magic pill question. And this uh, this interview, the magic pill question, it takes a bit of a different slant each time we ask it. So the magic pill question is going to be, Dash, if you could take a magic pill that would make your skin white, Caucasian, so you looked Caucasian, uh, but everything about you was still the same. Would you take the pill? I want to say yes, because I guess I don't know any different uh, than being in my skin. And I should say that I do love the the skin that I do have, but I do want to take it. And I want to see, you know, whether I'm actually treated different, whether um, it's purely based on my skin that certain assumptions are made. So, yeah, I think I, I do want to say yes. I probably don't want it to be permanent. So hopefully there's a reverse Oh, feeling. there's a reverse um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to that one in a minute. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting take on it, actually. I like the idea of wanting to explore a different sort of yeah, I guess it's it doesn't come from a point of me disliking the colour of my skin, which was very easy to do in growing up in Sri Lanka. So right across South Asia and South Asian diaspora across the world, fair skin is something that is very desirable. Yeah. So um, I think this may come, well, probably not, um, a surprise to listeners of this podcast, but certain people find it really um, interesting that, you know, people from the same ethnicity can have very different skin colors. Or, for example, that if I spend a little bit more time in the sun, I can actually get darker. Um, so that comes as a shock to some people, even though lots of, you know, Caucasian people will 
you know, line the sun to tan, but it is suddenly such an unusual thing for a brown person to get actually darker. Yeah, so it's, it was like growing up, I was exposed to a lot of fairness products. And in fact, it's really hard to go and get something off the shelf in some of those countries that does not have some sort of branding um, about fairness. Um, like sometimes you go to the supermarket and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to get a face foot. And you just don't think about it. Like I certainly have done it. And then I've come back home and someone else has read it and been like, are you trying to get fairer? And I was like, no, I just grabbed it. I just, I didn't think about it. I just picked something off the shelf and here we are. And so, yeah, there was a lot of that. And a lot of people would, compare like my skin color to let's say one of my brothers and be like oh your tone right now is is really nice and like just don't go in the sun Um, and so it is in that sense it's been something that is like fair skin is desirable is something that I was exposed to from a very young age but I think a lot of work that my family did is that we didn't feel that way Uh, we never felt like we would like to be fairer or darker or whatever we were very comfortable in our skin color and so I'd never actually thought about it to be honest like I was saying to Mm. you earlier I'd never thought about being fairer or darker I, I realized it's something that happens like I can go several shades darker in the summer months so like it it is definitely challenging because you can't pick a foundation Um, (laughs) you need to have several shades of foundation (laughs) Um, so yeah uh, it's it's a pure curiosity as to why I would take that pill like whether you know are they going to be you know am I going to experience this very very obvious changes from people or maybe even in products and things like because most things that come uh, in skin color don't necessarily come to my skin color no no they don't particularly makeup like it's it's quite yeah, hard to get yeah. the, the darker tone foundations <laughs> aren't they sort of uh, it is yeah uh, it, it sure is and i'm but yeah i mean there there is there is a lot of stuff out there and, and it is it is improving um I guess a lot of the time I say change isn't fast enough for people like me because quite often people will say, yeah, you just had to be patient, you know, back in our day or something like that. And I'm like, that's great, but I'm alive today and I'm not going to be alive in another hundred years (laughs) when that change has happened. So change is never fast enough in certain areas for people like me. Fair enough. Cam, if you could take the magic pill, but for you, the magic pill is going to make your skin darker. So would you take the magic pill? And I guess, all right, since we've extended the courtesy to Dash, we should probably sort of, uh, we should probably actually say that we have a reversal pill as well. <laughs> um, right. I think if you'd asked me this, gosh, thinking back longer than I care to admit, probably when I was 19 or so, which I'd, what's the maths on that too long We're not too long ago if you'd asked me back then i would have said a definite yes back then 
And for a long time growing up, I think I would have done a lot to outwardly appear more how I felt on the inside. That was the reason why I got my first and only tattoo. Um, I have a ochre handprint tattoo on the underside of my right arm, which I often forget about and then notice in the the mirror and get a fright. Now I'm curious, but that's okay. (laughs) We won't take you, we won't ask you, I won't ask you to take your shirt off on camera. Well, you can see it just, just there. There it is. Oh, yeah. Um, Very cool. I, I won't put it, that in there in the show notes. I don't think anybody needs to see my armpit. <laughs> uh, but I think nowadays, I think I have got to know enough people from an, enough different backgrounds, from enough Indigenous people in particular, from enough different nations around Australia and enough people like me who have had different journeys of identity throughout their lives that I think I am accepted by the people who matter. And that's good enough for me now. I don't feel that I have to look a certain way like I used to feel, but it would still be, it would still be interesting, but I, I don't, I think I could quite happily take it or leave it. So yeah, I think, I think I'd be okay to leave it as I am. So Dash can have my reversal pill. Well, I guess sort of, uh, I should answer this question as well. And I think we agreed that the question for me would be, uh, not about skin color because that's not really a part of my identity at all. Uh, but about if I could take a pill, that would mean that I would be a classically attractive cisgendered woman. Um, would I? Would I take that pill? And it's an interesting question because it ties in a lot. Because I do. I'm not going to lie here. I probably do. I identify as binary female, so I'm not sort of. Uh, I don't identify in an non-binary sense at all it's just who I am I'm binary female and the idea of actually just existing and being a classically attractive cisgender woman I would be lying if I didn't say that there were some very very attractive elements about that not only making life easier but just yeah, like it's it's probably a reflection on it's sometimes how I feel uh, about it. It's an interesting one, sort of Cam that you mentioned. I think that when you were, if you were younger, that you would have been more likely to take the pill and sort of uh, and that as you've explored and and met more people and met your people and and seen other people's experiences and and how they sort of how they relate to the world and and that sort of for want of a better term enriched your understanding sort of uh, I feel like sort of uh, of what it's what it is to be an Aboriginal person that that's perhaps affected how you would approach this I kind of yeah like I, I totally get where you're coming from 
I also have a sort of, uh, you know, I'm probably the one of the three of us who I could probably, with various surgeries, probably could actually vaguely come close to the magic pill. <laughs> I mean, you know, facial feminization surgery, a breast org, um, you know, GRS, whatever. It would be, it would be pretty close. But I don't know if I'd lose me. I, I, I wonder if I'd lose me in there. And I, as I said before, I kind of like me. I, it's taken me a long time to like me. Uh, it's, it's been a journey and there are still bits about me that I, that I have challenges with and hence uh, seeing psychologists and talking to people. But, yeah, I feel like it would be a little bit too much of a loss of me. I've spent a lot of this journey that I don't, even though I wouldn't lose who I am, sort of that was the premise of the question, like sort of wouldn't, I wouldn't lose who I am per se, I feel a part of me, a part of who I am is actually about, as you said before, dash, glow up. Mm. I'm there, I'm going to be wearing the rainbow dress, the sort of the rainbow sequin dress, and, and sort of uh, that is who I am. I'm going to say the answer for me is a no. Even if I could take a reversal pill, because I'm partly because I'm actually then sort of thinking if I did take the first pill, I'm not sure I'd take the reversal pill. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's our that's our last question. And we've been going for a very long time now. And it has been a wonderful chat with both of you, uh, it's been incredible. Uh, Dash, been wonderful to catch up again. You're looking stunning as always. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you have to worry about about looking beautiful. You certainly look freaking bloody awesome. Um, I swear every time I see you. You both do. Um, it's too kind, Kate, too kind. Cam, uh, you've been absolutely wonderful as always and... Uh, uh, just this is a it's talking about safe spaces this uh, this space with you cam when sort of uh, when we get on this uh when we get into these podcasts is a it's a safe space where i can explore stuff that uh, that i don't necessarily explore in other spaces that's good so, it feels good thank you for that it's yeah um yeah thank you i totally agree like i when I started or just before we started, I definitely had a huge wave of anxiety. Um, but it was a really safe space where I felt so comfortable to to have a chat with you. And it was very genuine with both of you. And uh, it's awesome. I think it <clears throat> it's such an awesome podcast and it is really cool to be talking to someone that I look up to so much. <laughs> Okay, and it's very nice to meet you, Cam. And yeah, it's I'm honoured and flattered in in a lot of ways. No, it's been absolutely wonderful having you, Dash, and yes. love loving your energy and just your your reflections on how you see things. It's just it is genuinely beautiful. On that wave of sort of mutual compliments, I feel like we probably should end <laughs> before yeah. this is sort of uh, yeah. tune out. So thank you, everyone, again for listening in, and thank you again, Dash. 
uh, for joining us. And uh, we will look forward to uh, to um, releasing this and also to our next podcast, which we haven't decided who our next guest is, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. We will. Can. It'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everybody. And All right. bye. 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 bye.